practical joke. Somebody thought putting Nair in my shampoo was funny. No, it was me who did it. Just another day. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. And from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, and you're a stumbling block to me. You're setting your mind not on the divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Well, what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but I... I tend to be one of those people who generally turns and walks in the other direction when some well-meaning soul starts talking about the end times. Because, let's be honest, most popular end time speculation sounds eerily similar to other conspiracy theories that emerge, like a slime-covered creature from the fever swamps of Paranoiac Village only with more Jesus-y lingo. I have a difficult time taking seriously people who expend so much energy looking for signs of a world teetering on the edge of some sort of apocalyptic conflagration, like a, like a sanctified Mad Max entering Thunderdome waving a Bible and a Jesus fish. But I gotta say, I mean, what with a former occupant of the White House and the a whole who's who of former luminaries in his administration and on his campaign under multiple indictments with insurrectionists finally going to jail for, wait for it, <clears throat> insurrection. I mean, with a climate crisis, with hurricanes and wildfires and rising ocean levels that feel, feels kind of like it might have already reached critical mass. All of that 
on the heels, perhaps even in the midst of, a pandemic <laughs> that killed, killed so far over a million people in this country and over almost seven people, million people worldwide. Now with all that going on, maybe it feels a little bit more hollow to dismiss those who think we're living in the borderlands of the apocalypse. Fine, I'll grant you that. Things are pretty tense. It's a difficult time, and even more difficult not to believe that everything is somehow touched by politics, right? In our passage for today, Jesus and his disciples are still outside the city of Caesarea Philippi, a city replete with the symbols of Roman imperial power. As, as we noted last week, this was the place that King Herod uh, chose to build a timber, uh, temple to honor Caesar Augustus, a city that was rena uh, renamed by his son, Philip, to become now Caesarea Philippi. And that's where he put his own personal palace. Now, this was a city where the Roman general Vespasian also, as I mentioned last week, launched his military response to what Rome considered at the time uh, the Jewish rebellion, a conflict that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple in 70 CE, just a few years before Matthew writes this gospel. So, as I said last week, the setting for our passage this morning would have screamed politics to first century readers of Matthew's gospel. Now, if you recall, Jesus has just asked his disciples what the word on the street was about him, right? They yell out names of famous prophets who've gotten sideways with the political kakunas, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Peter. Finally, if you remember, pipes up with the, uh, the correct answer, and he says, uh, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it is then that Jesus tells Peter that it's upon the foundation of this confession that Jesus will build a new ecclesia, which is an assembly. It's the word that often gets translated church in uh, the Christian scriptures, but was meant at the time, it was a Roman civic term that was talking about the assembly, the ecclesia. It was, the, it was a political assembly. So Jesus tells Peter that it's upon the foundation of this confession that Jesus is going to build a new ecclesia, unlike the Roman ecclesia, which was a political assembly where the will of the Roman Empire was made explicit and to which everyone was compelled to listen. This, this is new ecclesia, and that Jesus announces this new political assembly will make explicit the will of another realm, the realm of heaven, in which the powerful will no longer always be at the center of the community's life. In, in this new reign, this new realm, the poor and the dispossessed, the vulnerable and the oppressed, they get to take up their places of honor at the center of the community, instead of being on the outside all the time. Okay, fine. Now, in our passage this morning, after explaining this 
situation, the political nature of this new community of followers, Jesus tells his disciples that there's just one catch. He's going to be killed by the rulers of the old ecclesia. The power brokers of the old empire, ones that Rome uses to rule with an iron fist. They're going to kill him. And the means of Jesus' death, of course, won't be just any garden variety slip and fall. There's no succumbing to a bad case of dysentery or scurvy. It wouldn't even be a regular old state-sanctioned killing for getting caught committing doing something illegal, like, you know, stealing a car or something, camel. It would be a political execution ordered by the folks in charge. Now, in the shadow of King Philip's palace, of course, Caesar's lapdog, King Philip, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be crucified. And crucifixion, if you remember, was the most horrific form of punishment, capital punishment, that the Romans had managed to devise. A political assassination, a a, a public spectacle that was meant to serve as as a warning to anyone else who might harbor visions of rebelling against Rome and its representatives. Now... Peter, who's just gotten an A in class for giving the correct answer, presses his luck a little, showing that maybe he didn't entirely understand the answer that he'd given. He says, when Jesus predicts his own crucifixion, God forbid it, Lord. This must have never happened to you. And Peter's confusion is understandable once you realize that Being crucified wasn't something that, by definition, could happen to a true Messiah. According to conventional wisdom, being crucified would have been prima facie evidence that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Crucified Messiah was an oxymoron, like like, like, like God-fearing atheist or good driver from Ohio. No, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. But Jesus is adamant, right? I mean, he he knows he's going to get whacked by Big Brother, which, which knowledge raises an interesting question. How? How does Jesus know he's in line for a state-sponsored set of body piercings? I mean, does Jesus have some kind of Sybil Trelawney second sight that the rest of us don't have access to? Does he use some sort of divine spoiler info, some top secret cheat codes that the rest of us, we don't get to see? Because, I mean, if that's true, then Jesus is not like me at all. I don't have those things to call on when I need them. I mean, if Jesus, all Jesus has to do at any given moment is dial up this sort of mental jujitsu that none of the rest of us have, then he's not, as the Hebrew writer says, a high priest who's been tempted in every way as we are. Because, I mean, if you already know all that stuff, it's not like any of our experience of the world, is it? 
But I suspect there's something much easier by way of an answer for this dilemma. And that is Jesus knows he's on a fast track to destruction with the Roman state because anytime you challenge Caesar, you're living on borrowed time. So the fact that Jesus tells his disciples that he's in confrontation with the powers and principalities that will end in his brutal death, it's not some great magical feat of forecasting, right? Knowing which way the political winds are blowing is a pretty simple exercise. There's not really any surprise here. On June 12, 1963, Medgar Evers returned home after meeting with attorneys from the NAACP. He was the first field secretary for the NAACP in Mississippi. And he was working to organize boycotts and protests to register black people to vote. Well, needless to say, in 1963 in Mississippi, Medgar Evers found himself the target of white hostility. Obviously, among those who sought to retain control of the politics and culture of a state with itself a bloody history of oppressing black people. Medgar Edvers pulled into his driveway after a long day getting out the vote, registering voters. He got out of his car and he headed into the house to see his family. He was carrying the NAACP t-shirts in his hands that read Jim Crow has got to go. But after exiting his car, he was shot in the back. His wife found him bleeding out on the concrete. A horrific tragedy witnessed in living color by his wife and three children. Now, the story of Medgraver's assassination remains one of the foundational stories of the civil rights movement. A story that prompted not only outrage, but also emboldened the very African-American population that his assassination was meant to terrorize. It backfired. And his wife, Merle Evers Williams, she didn't quit, she picked up that work ultimately becoming the chairperson of the board of the NAACP, continuing the struggle for which her husband died. Now, in an interview with National Public Radio, Farai Chidea, <clears throat> some years back, asked Merle Evers-Williams how she dealt with the fear at the time of knowing that her husband might be hurt or, or, or killed in the days leading up to the assassination. And she said, I knew at some point, as he did, and we talked about it, that since he was the point person, he would be eliminated. We just didn't know when or how.
Today, I followed up that question by asking, do you literally mean that you spoke about this? That, 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 that one day I will probably die? Your, your husband said that to you? Mm-hmm. But we knew that. We knew that from the day he accepted the job with the NAACP. Can you hear that? We knew he was going to die. But the work they had in front of them, they thought was too important not to do anyway. As David Lowe has noted, it's no surprise that Jesus was killed. What's surprising is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection reinforces, indeed establishes, that Jesus' life, Jesus' love and sacrifice are ultimately what will prevail. Standing just outside of Caesarea Philippi, I suspect that another prediction that Jesus unveils is perhaps even more difficult for the disciples to wrap their heads around. He says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Now, I can imagine the disciples sort of sneaking glances at each other and going, what the what? Did he just say, we got to die on a cross too? Now, this is definitely not where we thought this conversation was headed. I mean, I mean, look, it's one thing for Jesus to find himself on the wrong side of the lynch mob. It's an entirely different thing to ask us to come along for the ride. The knowledge that their own deaths at the hands of the Roman Empire is the realization of a nightmare that every Jewish kid in the first century carried around with them every day of their lives. They lived in fear of precisely this. But in addition to coming to grips with the kind of death that palling around with Jesus was likely to result in, there was the galling awareness that being candidates for Roman crucifixion meant that you were part of an unsavory lot whose lives existed out on the edges of society, immersed in the seamy underbelly of life. You die that way, and it's a commentary on your life. On the other hand, being in this kind of company, the kind that no respectable first century Palestinian parent ever wished on their child, being in this kind of company is precisely where this new realm of heaven exists. It lives among those whom society has told everybody else it's okay to ignore them. It's okay to treat them less as others. We're all in on the secret. So Jesus not only wanders around indiscriminately, doing all kinds of geographic mischief, but 
where he sees the heart of the new creation that God is busy revealing is right there in the very capital of Rome's power in this region. Warren Carter observes, on another level, it, uh, it is a call to a life of marginalization, to identify with the nobodies, like the enslaved, foreigners, criminals, those who underst uh, understood to be cursed by God. It's also to identify with those who resist the empire's control, who, who, who contest its vision of reality, and who are vulnerable to its reprisals. It is to identify with a sign of the empire's violent and humiliating attempt to dispose of all who threaten or challenge its interest. You, if you identify with the cross, you're blowing everybody's mind. But the thing is, as bad as Jesus talk about crosses and laying down one's life sounds, there's still good news to be had in this. To identify with the cross and with the kind of people who are candidates for Rome's most severe and cruel form of capital punishment on the, on the edges of society is not to endorse the symbol, but to counter and reframe its violence. It is to see in the crucifixion something even more profound than they intended. In embracing the cross, Jesus' followers can say of empire at its most bloodthirsty, what, is this the best you got? God's got an even more astonishing trip up God's sleeve. It's a little something we like to call Easter. Now there's a trick. Warren Carter writes, as the end of the gospel shows, embracing the ignominy of crucifixion is to identify with a sign that ironically indicates the limits of the empire. The empire does its worst in crucifying Jesus, but God raised Jesus from death to thwart the empire's efforts and reveal the limits of its power. To lay down one's life and to pick up a cross for Jesus is, is a counterintuitive way of embracing this new realm that God unleashes. By, by, by bearing witness to the fact that this new realm arises as God's cosmic, no! no! To every other realm that gains its strength from blood and the terror of the vulnerable. It's an act that refuses to give the elite the power of intimidation and conformity that it so desperately craves. That's what our identifying with the cross does. In the current iteration of empire in which we live right now, in Washington, in Frankfurt, Louisville, in all the places where the knee of oppression crushes the necks of the marginalized, all kinds of people need to, us to embrace the life-giving, if painful and often humiliating, reality that though 
empire deals in the death and suffering of those least able to protect themselves, it is ultimately that empire on a collision course with God's new world, where those who want to save their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives for Jesus' sake and the sake of this new world find them. The empires of this world always imperil Jesus and those who lay down their lives to follow him. There's not any surprise there. Whenever you're a threat, empire has all kinds of ways to answer the problems that you pose. But the very fact that there are those who continue to be willing to embrace the cross on behalf of the voiceless and the disinherited, it demonstrates every day, again and again, the very limits of empire. It shows that the powers and principalities are never strong enough to thwart the commitment of peace, justice, and love of those who know that God is at work saying yes, yes. to everyone who's too often been subjected to the oppressive and the lethal. No, people in power. God is busy saying yes to the people we're so used to hear and know. <sighs> and that's the biggest surprise of all time. For God to choose the weak, the vulnerable, the powerless as a sign. Nobody saw that coming. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.